Thursday, y'all. This is Babs Ross Ivy, and you're listening to Love Babs Love Talk on 103.5 FM WNHH. Hey, Harry, good morning. Good morning, Babs. So, we have a guest. Guess who's in the studio with me today? My friend, Norm Pattis. Come closer to the mic like you're kissing it. (laughs) It's kissing me back. Maybe we should go off the air for a while. (laughs) So, so y'all know I do this show every morning at nine o'clock. So, he is my first midday morning show guest like dropped in which i love so i think we'll do more of this cool so so he's just hot off this big big case and so i texted him yesterday just to say hey you know i'm thinking about you whatever whatever you know because it was a it was a uh it was a tough case and it tugged at a lot of heartstrings and i had no idea you were the attorney well you know Neither did the jury, apparently. They convicted my client. (laughs) They're not supposed to do that. (laughs) So when you take these kinds of cases, Norm, how do you feel? Like, what makes you take a case like this? Well, this was a case involving a man convicted of murdering his own seven-month-old child by throwing him off the Aragoni Bridge, that long bridge in Middletown. Um, The mom contacted me, and, you know, I went up to meet the guy and concluded that he needed help. So people say, how do you represent folks like that? And to me, it's easy that, you know, I I look, his name is Tony, Tony Moreno. I look at Tony and see myself, you know, I, 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 um, um, I come from tough places and the people I represent are usually in a jam. And so it's easy for me. I mean, the the real question is how could you not represent somebody like that? Mm -hmm. Well, you're one of, now people say, and I believe them that you're probably one of the best attorneys in the country. One of? Who are these people? <laughs> Damn it, get them on the line right now. <laughs> like, you are one of the best legal minds in the country. Well, that's nice to hear. It is. It is. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, this case was very, very difficult for me. Obviously, the facts are horrible. But it, ironically, in the middle of it, somebody very important to me died. And I had to ask for a couple days to go to a memorial service. And it really opened me up because um, and made me face some pretty dark truths about myself. My father abandoned uh, my mother and me when I was about eight. He just disappeared one day, and I didn't see him again for about 40 years. I had no idea whether he was dead or alive. And that hurt. You know, that hurts to be, have your heart broken like that when you're a kid. And I think standing next to this man accused of murdering his own son made me realize that at some level, uh, in these desperate cases, I'm reliving my own loss, and I'm making sure that that man standing next to me never feels abandoned and that he'll have a hand on his shoulder throughout the worst moments of his life, and I can be for him what my father wasn't for me. And that's enough for me. I don't need more than that. Really? Yeah. I feel that way, too. That's why I have four kids. I adopted yeah. four kids, and, and I just thought, 
these are four kids that I could do for them what wasn't done for me. Yeah, to no, absolutely, them. absolutely. You get so back. I get that. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. I'm not sure I get it yet, but it occurred to me because the, the man who died was my big brother. You know, the Big Brothers program. Mm-hmm. He was 87. I hadn't seen him in a while, and I heard he died, and I just had to be at that memorial service and had an opportunity to thank his family for being part of the village that it took to raise me. You know, you've heard that expression about it taking a village to to raise a child. I was a wild child. There were four or five families that took me in over various <laughs> periods of time. And I might not have become fully tame yet, but I'm not dead yet. And someday I may be civilized. So. So, so when you take these kinds of cases, how do you take care of yourself after the fact? Because this is not your first rodeo around this kind of... Are you trying to tell me it's not the first time I've been kicked in the rear end? I know you gave me a warning about words I couldn't say here, so I'm not going to say... <laughs> I was bicked in the cast or anything like that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we're all born to die. Um, everybody makes mistakes. No one is the sum of their worst moments. You know, and, I use that. Yeah. You gave me that. I use it everywhere I go. Yeah. Well, you and I have a history. That's yes. Unique, a, you know? a decade. Yeah. Has it been a decade? A decade. How come you look a decade younger? No, you have better hair than I do. Well, I got better hair than most people. My, <laughs> it's the wig. Um, and I got plenty of it, as my wife reminds me. Every four or five years, we have this game at home. She'll, you know, she'll say, she'll, she'll give me hints. And I'm, for two or three years, she'll be saying, maybe you should trim your hair. And I'll ignore her for the first year or two. And then because it's a long marriage and I have a tendency to piss the people <laughs> off around me, she'll get angry during the third year sometime and I'll think, hmm, how can I build a bridge with her? And I'll usually say something like, I'm going to count to 10. And I'll, if you can find a pair of scissors that quickly, you can cut off as much as you like. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah. But then, you know, this isn't too off color. It's a double entendre warning. You may want to have your children out of the room at this point. Um, when she cuts it, I always say, look at all that you've cut and it's still longer than anybody's I know. <laughs> Great hair. Yeah. Oh, Harry's trying to, you know, give you some technical assistance. I need all. Of it. No, so, I mean, you know, these. I mean, it's hard to lose a case. I mean, what can I tell you? You know, you, you. It's, I, I tell the younger lawyers in my firm. You know, we're a firm of warriors, and a warrior has to be prepared to die. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you die in open court, but your spirit is never broken. And so today, you know, I'm out. I'm up, and I'm looking for another fight. Wow, that takes. But that's a. That's not everybody's thing everybody can't do that most you've seen people who can be broken and they are broken yeah and you just seem to soldier on what choice do we have none of us asked for the lives we've been we we we, for life i mean we all find ourselves in the middle of a world of pain Mm -hmm. um and agony and we struggle to do the best we can with dignity for me um, criminal defense has been a vehicle to stand next to the despised and to give them the respect um, uh, that they deserve and to fulfill a commitment to never, never leave them. Um, now, did you always know you wanted to do criminal law or what did you, how did you get into this? I'm an accidental lawyer. Um, <laughs> no, I really am. Um, you know, when, when, when I was coming, my father cut out when I was about eight, my mother, um, had difficulties. I was sent to live with relatives. Then we kind of outran, um, social workers for a number of years. We lived in an attic one year. We rented rooms from some bet, bet, bet feces crazy woman another year. Um, my mother eventually uh, invited a man to move in who uh, didn't care for me. So by the time I was about 16, I was out of the house and I knew I wasn't coming back. Um, so I 
ended up, I, w- I wasn't planning to go to college. Nobody had ever even gotten out of high school in our family. But uh, Y'all sound like black people. Hey, just because I'm Sounds white don't like mean I ain't people. right. <laughs> Sounds like black people. There, well, you know, there is, I, I, it is, I, I mean, man, I don't know anything about the color line. I know it separates and divides. I just know my life. Mm-hmm. And I saw a guidance counselor pulled me aside and said, what are you, what are you planning to do? And I said, I don't know, it's something. Um, and she said, you know, you test off the charts here. You're going to college. I said, I don't know anybody goes to college. So she got me a scholarship. I went and I learned how to study. And then I ended up at Columbia uh, where I had a, fellowship was teaching and it was taught at columbia for a while taught political philosophy it was going to be an academic but just didn't feel that i <laughs> that i fit into I that can't world imagine you as an academic yeah well i didn't i didn't feel like i fit you know socially it was an awkward thing so then i worked as a journalist for a while um did some government work um and then thought you know i really want to know more about how the world works and i went to law school met john williams whose office is right upstairs here and um i love the law love the fight so, really? Yeah, yeah. So do you think that's the beginning of a memoir? Because I know you have books out. How many yeah. books do you have now? I lost count. Yeah, four. four. So four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've thought about writing about fathers and sons, especially, you know, and it's a tough thing to do. It's tough to find time. I mean, I go to court every day. I've got a law firm. I own a bookstore. You know, I mean, there are only so many hours and I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> um, so there are only so many hours in the day. Um, but surely a publisher has said, you should take a stab at a memoir. Well, he's always on me. I mean, do this, do that, do this. And I'm like, how many lives do you think I have to live? You know, and the books don't sell all that well. Um, What I've learned is that lawyer books don't sell much, though people like the law. They don't like to read about it that much. So it's on my mind and maybe someday, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe someday. Well, you know, you have have an interesting story and I think people would be fascinated to know it Yeah. because I don't think people know you. Uh, You're not, you know, I mean, even though you handle social media very well. And you do some opinion pieces mm-hmm. and you're on television and you've done these things. But I don't think people know Norm Pat is the man. Sure, I do. You know, I mean, you know, so here's you know, my wife was uh, about eight, nine years ago. It's very sick. And it was an open question whether she'd survive. And so I went to see a shrink thinking, man, I've got three kids. I've got this sick wife. I've got employees. I've got a lot of clients. You know, people really need me. And I'm going to need some help here if this is if this is lights out Yankee Stadium time. So she got better, and then I stuck with the shrink, and now I go to psychoanalysis <laughs> four mornings a week at 7 o'clock. This poor guy's got to listen to me bitch, moan, and whine about how unjust the world is and how dare they lock my client up. No one's of some of their worst moments. Maybe it's murder, but don't you think 10 years would be enough? Yeah. And so we're working through those issues. And, you know, I mean, I guess I'm nominally more insightful than I was before, but not a whole lot more. So now is television calling you? Well, I've had fun on TV. Here, let me tell you my best TV story. I'm sitting in the office one day, and no good trial lawyer likes to be in the office. I mean, you want to be in court. You want to be fighting with people. That's what you're born to do. But the phone rings, and I pick it up, and it's some television producer says, you know, uh, would you be interested in being on a documentary show about uh, celebrities and crime? I said, yeah, hell yeah. There's nothing about crime I don't like. So they send a crew to uh, audition me, and, you know, I don't hear anything for about six weeks. Then I get a, a note back. We loved you. And I'm like, great. I'm, you know, you're Hollywood. Here I come. And then I don't hear anything for about eight months. And I'm figuring, oh, well, you know, I got lost in the cutting room floor. And they call back and they say, well, we, we, we scrapped the crime show. And I'm like, damn. And they said, but we're going to do something on celebrity estates. And I said, I don't know anything about estates. I just barely passed the bar exam on that topic. They said, don't worry. We'll just give you briefing books. So I went up to Montreal and we uh, for 
about four days of filming every separated by three months or so. And we talked about 15 or so people that give me briefing books. And now it's on TV. It's on Reels channel. And, you know, I did Jimi Hendrix. I did Somebody Marilyn saw Monroe. you. Somebody from New Jersey just sent me a message saying, I saw Norman on a murder show. Yeah. <laughs> well, I get these mash notes from women I don't know. And I'm like, damn, where were you when I was single? You know, um, <laughs> you are good looking. I, I will say that. <laughs> You are a good-looking man. Even though it's radio, you should see her mic smoldering, you know. <laughs> but I'm 61, so those flames, you know, those flames are uh, not That's what they not used true. to be. No, yeah. I don't think so. I'm pleading the fifth. He's on got the great hair, great complexion, and he's mm-hmm. smart. Women like that. Well, <laughs> there's only one woman who needs to like it, and that's my wife, and I'm that's working on that. That's a good answer. <laughs> Yay! That's a good answer. Good answer. So now, do you think you could find yourself, you know, um, writing stories for television no no like you could lift some of the stories you've worked on and turn them into fiction the (laughs) we have a saying in my office you can't make this stuff up (laughs) um you know the number of phone calls we get on a weekly basis is overwhelming we've got several people who just answer the phones and um um the stories that i hear are so much better than anything i read so much more compelling and when you get to know the people and then of course i can't really tell the full story because of the attorney client privilege you mm-hmm. know if if you come to me in trouble your your secrets are mine for life mm-hmm. some people will will consent like mr moreno for example who was convicted yesterday doc dr phil's all over that so he may be appearing really? on dr phil in the next couple of weeks i don't know we, you know i've done dr phil before i know yeah, yeah. I and know. it was interesting that was with the manhattan madam um uh, the new york city's <laughs> Now, was that fun? That was a blast. Let me tell you the funniest thing about that. So I get, I'm, I'm driving back from the Cape and, and my cell phone rings and it's this little girl and her, she wants me to go see her mother on Rikers Island. And I said, what am I on Rikers Island for? I mean, you know, you need a passport to get into that place. It's like a third world country. Well, it as this was Anna Christina, the Manhattan madam. So I'm thinking, this is kind of interesting. I mean, I'm, you know, I might be old, but I still have an imagination. The world's top madam, what does she have access to? All of my darkest, <laughs> deepest fantasies. So I go to meet her, and one thing leads to another. And it turns out I'm likely to be her lawyer. But the night before I meet her, um, she, I'm supposed to go stay at a place in New York that's been arranged for me with another lawyer. So I say to my wife, you know, I love you, dear, as I'm leaving. And, but I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to be confronting tonight. I'm staying at this place where the Manhattan madam has directed me. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of worried about what might be there when I get there. And frankly, I'm kind of worried about what might not be there. <laughs> <laughs> so I got there and there was nothing. You know, I just slept overnight. It was a fun case. I mean, that was a whirlwind of a case. That was a wow. Case. There are madams still in the world, like, I guess. Well, maybe. that's what the state of New York thought. Now, here's what happened in that case. It was extremely unusual. Um, remember when Elliot Spitzer got popped? Uh-huh. Um, so Elliot Spitzer's going to get arrested there's a confidential warrant for him and the public corruption unit of the manhattan district attorney's office is wiretapping certain madams that they're interested in in town and they had a wiretap for miss christina and they hear her say before the public knew that spitzer was going to get popped elliot's going down tomorrow i need to get out of town i'm heading to canada for a while and they're like how did she know this does she have a source inside the da's office so they engineer an arrest of her. They take her to a safe house in Manhattan that you, you know, because they're the public corruption unit of the district attorney's office. When you go to their office, there's no, you, they, they give you an address. They move it every so often. You can't find it when there's no sign on the door. Get out of uh, here. No, it, 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 you know, cause it's a, it's an intense city. We, we, we play softball in Connecticut. They play hardball in Manhattan. 
so they they take her into this room and they they are figuring you know we can scare her we can flip her because she's not a united states citizen and we'll play the immigration card and all this other jazz so they want to know who she knows she doesn't talk so they slap a huge bond on her and she sits in rikers island for a while and she never did talk um and she never did give anybody up well that's her i mean but that depends you know her business depends on her quiet that was her business at the time she's now out of the trade but when she was in it if you had thirty, forty thousand dollars, you could be abducted by leather-clad women in a limousine and beaten within an inch of your fantasies, and then dropped back off after a couple of days. I mean, that was the sort of work that the state of New York believed she was involved. Oh, in. okay. I never asked. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! See, that's a that's a you could tell that story, but you know, change yeah. the name to protect the innocent. Well, I think one of the, some television show did did the Christina case. I can't remember which one it is, but I remember watching it, thinking, "Hey, that's my client." <laughs> <laughs> Probably that Law and Order. You know, yeah, that it was something like Law that. and Order. Yeah, it was something you know? like that. Yeah. So, how do you say no? How do you say no? You get a million clients calling you every day. How do you pick and choose? Well, it's it's, sad. it's a sad reality. I mean, I'm glad a, you said yes to me, but how do you say no? Yeah. Um, so. I have bills to pay, a lot of employees, this, that, and everything else. I own a bookstore that I operate, frankly, at a loss. So I have to make money at it, frankly. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say 80% of the people we represent pay and 20% don't. And so how do you get to be one of those 20%? You don't call up and say, I want to be one of your pro bono clients. Because that's sort of like, you know, really? I, you know, I said to somebody who called me with an attitude not long ago saying, I'd like you to be, I'd, I'd like you to represent me. I'd like you to... Take my case pro bono. I said, well, that's funny because I'm looking for somebody to pay me today. I got the IRS sending me nasty grams. Um, so <laughs> for me, it's all about passion and finances. I will, you know, I do some cases strictly for mercenary reasons because the clients can pay well. Um, but if it's a good story and it's a lost soul, um, I, I, it's, it's really hard to say no. Mm-hmm. I remember the Akov Ortiz case years ago. The mom came to see me about her son and she cried and her tears were my payment. And Akov had, had issues. Uh, he was believed by the state to want to become a drug dealer, but he didn't have any money. So he had the problem all young venture capitalists have. How do I get my startup capital? He's 16 or 17, no money in the family, and you can't exactly go to the bank and say, I want to open a Drugs R Us franchise. But his girlfriend's father was a state trooper. So he thought, wow, what an impressive gun collection my girlfriend's father has. Oh. So he and a buddy allegedly broke into the house and stole the guns. The police were upset about that. You know, if there's one thing you don't do, you don't, you know, two things I guess are always going to get you in trouble with a cop, stealing their guns or saying their nightstick is happy to see you. Um, so the cops start leaning on the kid's friend and maybe the kid says too much and suddenly the kid disappears and then he's found dead in the woods. <gasps> yeah, think, fancy that. And the death was apparently not from natural causes on the state's theory. So now they're interested in Akoff, and Akoff disappears for a year or so, arguably goes on a drug-induced binge around the country, and he comes home to detox, and he still wants to see his little girlfriend. She didn't want to see him, though, because he's too much trouble. Daddy says, you're a murderer. So maybe he gets to her house one night, maybe he crawls in the bedroom window, maybe they have a little talk, and maybe he leaves, and now the police are even more wound up. They think he's armed and dangerous, and so they decide they're going to set up a sting operation, um, and they're going to capture him um, in a remote field in Middletown. And the and the claim is they, they set up they set the girlfriend up to call saying, "Come to my house at such and such. I'll meet you um, behind the school. I think it was. And there's this little crick with a bridge. 
And so they lay in wait for him one night at around midnight, and he passes through, and they jump out. Freeze, freeze, freeze. Well, of course, Akoff's got a gun with him, and he turns around, and he starts shooting. Oh! <laughs> well, what are you oh going to do? God. It's the middle of the night. A bunch of white guys come out of the thing saying, freeze, freeze, freeze. It's summertime. I'm not freaking freezing. What's that gun? Bam, 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 bam. So, you know, things happen. And so now the oh. state's charging him with attempted murder of a police officer, with this, with that, oh with everything God. else. Oh, my God! It was such a great story. I just had to get involved. So we did. And we got him. That is a great story. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I argued to the jury that, you know, he couldn't tell they were cops and maybe he shouldn't have had the gun. So you should convict him for the gun. But if some bunch of people jump out at night pointing guns at you, what are you going to do? You're going to shoot back. And so he was not guilty of attempted murder of a police officer. But the thing I remember most about that, you know, trial lawyers are human too, Babs. Okay. Uh And sometimes you just got to fart. Okay. So I'm in I'm, I'm in this very tense trial. <laughs> I'm in this very, very tense trial. Wow. And I'm laying out the jumpsuit the cop had on the floor so the jury can see that it's black and there's nothing on it that says police if the guy's coming at you. And as I bend over, <laughs> there it goes. And you could hear a pin drop in the room. And I turned to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury and I said, it's okay to laugh. <laughs> So things happen. <laughs> wow. So that was a case that, you know, the odds were so much against my client, I couldn't say no. And, you know, reflecting on it, I think it's because I am an accidental lawyer and the odds were so much against me as a kid. You know, I mean, we were living in an attic at one point and um, outrunning social workers. And I know all about despair and I know what it's like to have nobody to turn to and to be scared scared to death. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the kind of client that I like. So now you've got kids. Right. How many kids do you have? Three. Three, Three, right? Mm -hmm. They're grown up. Yeah, 34, 31, and 30. So what kind of dad are you? Um, Distant. Distant? Um, I mean, they all turned out well. One's an MD, PhD, working in neurosciences for a a near Nobel Prize winner. So, I mean, how bad could we have done there? Another one, (laughs) 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 you know, uh, another one is... um, Works for REI, the outdoor company, and is a professional bicycle racer on the West Coast. And, and another child works in a restaurant and travels the world. She works six months a year and goofs off for the rest and somehow has more money in the bank than the rest of us. I think it's all legitimate, I haven't asked. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I don't know what to do with them, candidly, Babs, you know, because I, I moved out of the house when I was about 16 and never really looked back. I got all the kids through college without debt, and I feel, sort of feel like I've outlived my usefulness in their mm-hmm. lives, you know. So. Are you a grandfather yet? Not yet, but my wife and I were walking on a beach a couple years ago, and I saw these tiny little footprints, and I called her over. I'm not going to give you her name, because she'd be too embarrassed. I said, dear, dear, sort of. I'm ready. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. Are you ready? Well, I'm as ready as I'll ever be. You know, I'm 61 years old. If it doesn't happen now, I mean, it's not like I'm going to be around forever. You know? <laughs> I know, but 60, 60, 60 is like the new 45. Well, that's all right. There's... And the life expectancies are increasing. People used to die well before 45. I know. <laughs> nothing, I know. nothing, nothing. You can't take anything for granted in this world. Now, have you started the bees? Because I know you were in conversation. We were in conversation about the bees. Have you started the bee oh, yeah. farm? Well, not a bee farm. We, we live on a fair amount of land out in Bethany. So we let community supported agriculture use some of the land and we oh. irrigate it for them. And so they've moved bees in. And so we've harvested honey for several years now. Really? Mm-hmm. And so is that rewarding? What does that do for you? It tastes really good on my toast in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you could go to the store and get honey. I mean, is there some 
sense of environmental justice to that? Is there some, you know, spiritual thing to it? Like, like what made you decide to do it? Well, so we lived in Westville and we're... I didn't know that. Yeah, for many years. And then we were looking for a place in Vermont because I want to get away from it all. Um, that's my fantasy. It's like the world's coming to an end. Let me just go die in a log cabin somewhere. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> well, you, you laugh, but it's really, really true. That's my that's my fantasy. I too. love apocalyptic <laughs> literature. And when I look at the political climate in this country, I'm thinking, hey, my dreams are coming true. Faster um, than you think. No, no, no feces, Sherlock. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we were looking around on the Cape where we. Um, would go in the summers and there was this house and we loved it. And the, the bank said we could afford it. I'm like, they, they must know something I don't, cause I don't think we can. And then a friend of ours called to say that the, this, this house on land in Bethany was on the market and we went to look at it and fell in love with it. So, really? we, you know, we, we, where I live, you, from the house, you know, you can, you can't see any of your neighbors. It's like being in Northern Vermont. It's a lot of land and you know, we're not using it. I'd like to spend more time and we grew we gardened, for several years, very labor intensive, and we raise animals and so forth. Yes, um, tell me. I want to get to but, the animal thing. You know, it seemed like a shame to not have the land be used um, to produce food, um, and it also corresponds with my, you know, sort of apocalyptic fantasies about the world coming to an end and being <laughs> self sufficient. So we let them use it, and I think they're moving on this year. They've been there for four years, so I don't know what we'll do this year. But the hives, the beehives, will remain. Wow. So tell me about the animals, because I know you have dogs. Right. So over the years, we've been a little goofy. Um, we had my wife, I wanted to get chickens. Send to my wife, oh, if we're going to get chickens, you know, we've got all these ticks out here. We should get guinea fowl, because guinea fowl um, end up with, um, um, as, as eating, eating, eating um, ticks. So next thing you know, we ordered a bunch of guinea fowl eggs from a farm in Iowa. They came, and at some point, we had about 60, 65 various birds that were free-ranging on the property, meaning, you know, you just call them in at night and lock them up and let them out in the morning. And then word got out among the local vets that we were nuts. And what would happen is, you know, daddy might buy his little girl a chicken for Easter, a little little chicken, and then chicks grow into chickens and then the dog attacks the chicken and suddenly you got a 200 dollars vet bill for the chicken's broken wing and dad's like i don't want that thing back we'll go to stop and shop for the next chicken um so the vets exercise a lean and they don't return the birds but now the birds healthy healthy so where do they go they end up at our place so we ended up with an impressive collection of unusual birds including an emu which we still have Well, that's what i i know the emu yeah but what happened about three four years ago maybe five now Big storm blew through one day, and that night we're missing about half the birds. So I'm figuring they got blown onto somebody else's property. I don't know where they are. And then the following year, some coyotes came in and pretty well cleaned us out. And then the following year, the barns collapsed in a snowstorm, and it took a couple of years to put the money together to rebuild one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, all we have is the emu. Um, we've had a horse from time to time. Um, we debate sheep because we also have border collies. Um, and you know, it's a question of working. It's a question of whether you can train the dogs not to kill the border collies and border collies are a lot of work, you know? So, yeah, sort of, so this is like a bit of a farmer fantasy thing going on. What yeah, is that? Yeah, yeah. So is that relaxing? It's because yeah. it's such a departure from what you do. Oh, absolutely. No. I mean, when I get home, it's like, we're the only people on the world and all we got to do is care for the land and the animals. And I love it. Tell me about the bookstore too. So Whitlock's Farm Booksellers is also located in Bethany, around the corner, about a mile and a half from we, where we live. And um, it's on this beautiful parcel of land. Looks I know, like, I was trying to get you to have a jazz festival there. Well, maybe someday. 
So I drive by it about 12, 13 years ago, and I see it's for sale. And I'm thinking, man, that's just too beautiful a piece of land to have one of those gaudy McMansions on it. So at dinner that night, I said to my wife, you know, that bookstore around the corner is for sale. Uh, I've always wanted to, I love books. We're big readers. You know, we've got house full mm-hmm. of books, office full of books. You know, it's like a landslide in there. I joke with the kids, when I die, you're going to have one hell of a mess to sort through. Um, and they know it. That's probably why two of them live on the West Coast. Um, but... Um, um, she says, sure. So we talked to the banks and thanks to Webster Bank, um, we were able to buy the bookstore. We've had it now for about 13 years. It focuses solely on used books and our, um, um, our principal source of books are scholarly estates and over-the-counter sales. So mm-hmm. a professor will die medieval history, let's say, and heartbreakingly his or her surviving spouse typically gives the better books to the university for tax purposes. And then they've got a bunch of research material, three, 4,000 books, and we'll typically go in and buy those and then resell them. Uh, we have dealers come from around the world. And when we bought the shop, we got thank you notes from people as far away as Paris for saving the shop. It's been there for almost 60 years now. Wow. And it's in a couple of rickety old barns out in Bethany. You got to know it's there to want to, to want to get there. Um, <laughs> and when you get there, you know, walk carefully on the floors because I can't afford to replace the barns yet. One of these days I will, but, um, <laughs> but it's fun. I mean, there, you know, for me, books saved my life and, um, I'm, it's just, it's a great thing. You know, it's like, it's like a crack dealer at a crack den. I go in there and man, I'm the same yeah. way. If you come to my house, you'd be like, what? Is this a house or a bookstore? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, all right, let's talk. Let's spend the last few um, moments talking about uh, politics and topical stuff because mm. I know you do a lot of opinion pieces and mm. you've riled a lot of nerves, mm. <laughs> mine included. Yeah, well, I mean, I've offended a lot of friends and, and, and scared a lot of people lately. Yeah. And so, so, what is that about? Tell me about that. That's a great question. Um, I voted for Donald Trump. Really? As, yeah, as a protest vote. Um, I am, you know, one of the most, and, and what's that all about? Why would, why would a person who says he stands for the oppressed vote for this desiccated old white male who doesn't seem to know his rear end from his elbow? And I guess the reason I did is I'm, I'm scared about identity politics. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I think, um, that if our politics are going to be reduced to our accidents of birth, then conflict is inevitable. Um, and in St. Augustine's City of God, uh, he talked about there being two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And the city of man was based on what uh, always was based in sin, was based on loving the wrong thing, love of self. Uh, the city of God, whether you know it could exist in some earthly uh, or temporal form, was based on love of broader principles. And I think identity of politics is love of the wrong, identity politics is love of the wrong things. Mm-hmm. And the changing demographics in this country, um, I think have led minority communities to have a sense of embold, emboldenment um, that is a little terrifying if you're a white guy. And you can say, well, it's only terrifying because you've been at the top of the heap so long you haven't learned to share. And I'll own that, that's true. Um, but it can be terrifying in the sense that um, there's a sense of vengeance as well that I fear. And there's a really pregnant line in uh, um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird where uh, Atticus says to Scout, um, there's a reckoning coming. I hope it doesn't come in your children's lifetime. Hmm. And I think that the identity politics in this country are divisive, cancerous, and we need to find a better politics. So when I voted for Trump, I was largely just being fed up. If you're going to vote for this, you know, Hillary, I, I saw Hillary give a speech somewhere telling a bunch of largely white voters, what they owed minority people. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know anybody, anything based on their accident of birth. I'll respect you as a person and I'll fight for you as a person. 
But when you start telling me I owe you something, that's identity politics. And if we're going to play the game, then I'll vote for the guy that looks like me just to see where this goes. Mm -hmm. So I think that the only good thing that comes of the Trump presidency is it forces discussions like the discussion we're having right now. Mm -hmm. And it throws down a gauntlet in American politics. That's interesting. Can we find a way? to reach across what divides us, to, to find something that unites us. And, and you know, is, wouldn't that be something like integrity politics? I mean, it was uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King who talked about a day where people would be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skins. And in the electoral cycle, unfortunately, skin color is coming to matter too much. I don't know where we go from here. Uh, I know I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you're going to... I was in a public forum with State Senator Gary Holder after I'd spoken, said something apropos of what I said, that sometimes white people need to just shut up and listen. And and I thought about that overnight, and I thought, really? I agree. If I had said that to him, you know, I would have been tarred and feathered the next day. But, you know, white people have been saying saying that to us since we've been here. Mm. And and there's a certain, and there, I, you know, granted there's a certain privilege that you get to say that. You get to say all that you just said. Um, what, what privilege? I answered well, I mean, the question. I think, I think because, you know what, here's the thing. Um I don't understand. I don't get the reckoning. I don't. I don't get the sense that black people will be to white people the way white people were to black people. I don't. I, I don't get that sense at all. I hope you're right, but history suggests and, and, otherwise. Well, our history in this country has not suggested that. No, so. but the broader view. You know, there's a wonderful line in Machiavelli's discourses on Livy's history of Rome, and you're thinking, Lamont, don't play that card. <laughs> <laughs> but history matters. And, you know, people tend to flock to people who are like themselves. And, Mm. you know, I mean, what explains American politics right now? You know, everybody's wigged out about Trump. My view is Trump is the canary in the mine shaft. He's Mm -hmm. a symptom, not the cause. Things are so bad in this country, we ended up with a president like Trump. Trump Now that I agree with. I I agree with you wholeheartedly. And so I worry that people are just people, that we're all sinners in need of grace. Mm -hmm. um, And that, that, you know, um, uh, the, the history of race relations in this country is so dismal. Um, that he, I, I wouldn't expect to be treated any better than, than my forebears treated your forebears. Um, See, I take issue with that. I take, I guess because in my circle of friends and I know, and you know, I know a lot of black people Now I don't know every black person. <laughs> you don't, but, but I thought you all knew one another. I thought you all got together in the morning. <laughs> contrary to, uh, <laughs> <I'm teasing. laughs> contrary to popular belief. Um, I, I don't get that sense. Nothing in our history in this country bears that to be true. That may be true, and I hope you're right. You know, but I worry about it. I worry about it. And you know, you look at white suicide rates around the in, in the Middle West among older middle-aged people mm-hmm. um, who've lost. Uh, I don't know if it's a sense of entitlement. I think te- several things are going on. The changing demographics are part of it. I don't think that's the whole story. I think the rise of artificial intelligence replacing working people. I think we've lost hope in this country, and it's easy to turn on one another in fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that the artificial intelligence displacing working people is a problem. And I think it's what drives the debate on immigration. But it's not just this country, though, because look at we're looking at the Brexit whole no, thing. The yeah, but this is where I live. That. And this is where I live. You know? Yeah, but you could you have to sort of yes, this is where we live. But you're starting to sort you're starting to see this sentiment spreading across the well, world. Well, I think that's true. And I think I think if we use America as the microcosm for for that, then you can see that white folks are starting to feel like they are becoming less and less the majority around the world. I mean, I, they're not the majority around the world anyway. Never have been. But, yeah. No, I hear you. Well, I mean, I don't know that it's all race. I, you know, here's what I think. In the United States, we have a, a narrative about immigration, except for the Indians who we killed and the black people who we exp- um, ex- exploited and enslaved. Um, but everybody's welcome here, right? 
Um, <laughs> everybody's welcome to share. Just some of you have to wear chains um, <laughs> and say, yes, Mazza. Um, um, but, I, you know, in, in recent history, we, we say that we're a nation of immigrants. And that, that's sort of PC bull, frankly. I think that we've been inclined to feel generous when there was enough to share. And now that the economy is changing and there isn't, uh, we're facing up to who we really are. And I think all people are mean in the end. But don't you think that's an illusion, bit of an illusion about not enough, not having enough? Don't you think we have enough? But I think because we're starting to believe we don't have enough, that we're starting to become hoarders of our own. Maybe, but I'm looking at this. I'm looking. I'm, you know, I mean, I'm looking at the the flyover country in the Midwest and Mm -hmm. the number of places that have lost manufacturing jobs and people have nowhere to go. Look at the people in Kentucky, right? Right. I look at that, and I, you know, we the the coasts have always been a little bit more affluent because you've got access to international trade and so forth. But in flyover country, there's huge despair, and suicide rates are enormously high. And what's going on with the oxycodone and heroin epidemic? Why are people chucking out of reality? What makes reality so painful to face? So I, you know, maybe it's just me getting old and I'm not being creative enough. I'm open to that. I get that. You know? I feel the bones creak when I roll out of bed in the morning. Me too. Yeah. Um, but something's going on and it ain't good. Something mm. is going on, but I don't. So what do you think the answer could be? Like, where do you think we should focus our energies politically? If I knew that, I'd run for office. I'm trying to be honest about what I think and mm-hmm. be out there and upfront about it to make people respond to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I know I don't have the answers. Um, but I know my attitudes aren't, aren't unique. I know a lot of people feel this way. And so this is where I am. I'm messed up. What do you, what do you think we should do? I'm open because I really don't know. I really, I'm scared. Here's what I think. I think the next four years are going to be difficult. I think the next general election is going to blow the lid off this country. Um, because the symptoms that produce Trump aren't being addressed. The divisions are deepening and something's happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel you. I mean, as a mother of four children, I have two sons, um, teenagers, and they're black. <laughs> really? How'd that happen? <laughs> I thought you said you adopted. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they are, they stand six, four, six, three, respectively. Oh, so they must play basketball. No, they don't. No. I mean, they do. I'm teasing. I mean, they I'm do teasing. play basketball. I'm being a stupid white guy. Come on. Can't I no, live up to the role but, or down but to there it? is something to that. But yeah. they, they, they are basketball players. But, you know, I, I have less of a concern being in New Haven about their life being taken away than I've, if I were the same mother of the same children in another part of the country. Yeah, no, I think that's true. We've got a good you thing know? going in New Haven for the most part. For you the know? most part. I mean, I mean we're not, you know... I don't know. I think because we've worked at this police community thing for a lot longer than a lot of places. Here's an interesting thing. You know, I used to do a lot of police misconduct litigation, and many of these cases would end up in the federal appellate court in New York City. And so nine, ten years ago, I was mouthing off about something, and some judge said, well, isn't it the case, Mr. Pattis, that your firm has sued the police so many times that they're more careful? And I said, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) And I know the the New Haven Board of Alders is now working on creating a police accountability board. I've been retained to help draft the ordinance to create that. I think I heard that. Yeah, and So So how is that different than the Board of Police Commissioners? The Board of Police Commissioners, because I was one, right, is is, the, is a governing body, uh-huh. um, and it's basically the the employers of the police department. The Civilian Accountability Review Board will be a public body that has an ability to handicap or overlook um, complaints, how the police are handling complaints of police misconduct. There's a suspicion that cops like shuffle things under the rug, which I think is true, and that there's a blue wall of silence the community doesn't get to penetrate. 
So I think that the board's objective is to create accountability to the public mm-hmm. so that the public knows, okay, maybe we do give these guys the right to use lethal force and put them in difficult decisions, but that's a right they have that we've given them and we've given them that right to exercise on our behalf. So doesn't that, so shouldn't we have therefore a right to oversight? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so it's, it's not, it's, so it's different. It's not this accountability board is not the governing body or not the employer. It's, it's the public being invited in. to. to That's the best explanation I've heard for a civilian review, review board um, since I've heard of it. And you heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know what? That's yeah. a wonderful. Well, I mean, I believe it, you know, because if you look at what's happened around the country, when, when, when Mr. Garner was killed in Staten Island, I, I, I have my, I'm licensed to practice in those courts in New York. And so I get a call, you know, you should look at that case. Do you want it? And I looked at the, uh, the video of him and I thought, well, in terms of police training, there's not much that went wrong there. That's a defendable case under the Fourth Amendment. The police are likely to win. Um, Garner did a lot that brought his troubles on himself. And of course, that's an unacceptable answer. Um, if you're a person of color and you're used to getting screwed with by police on the street. Um, and I think police, the community, and I'm not using the community in terms of the black community, I'm talking about a community of people governed, um, don't really understand policing. And when policing, when police keep what they have to do and the standards by which they do it to themselves, they bring problems on themselves. And so the federal courts, as far as I'm concerned, have done a lot um, to make the streets unsafe. Um, because what they've done is they've made it almost impossible to bring a cop into court anymore because of a legal doctrine called qualified immunity. I think the public needs to evaluate it. Consider the following. What's the difference? If I, if I leave your studio today and some guy comes up to me with a gun and says, show me your wallet, I'll probably do it because I'm afraid of his gun. Mm-hmm. That's fear speaking. If a police officer comes up to me and says the same thing, show me your wallet, fear will still operate but because of the badge and indicia of authority, at some sense, I'll feel that he has a right to ask certain things of me. Not everything, but I'll treat him differently than I would the gangbanger. In many communities in the That's United States... That's an interesting point. You know, in many communities in the United States, police officers are regarded as gangbangers. And that's because we've lost a sense of legitimacy of public institutions. We don't regain legitimacy by hiding what the police do behind closed doors. We regain legitimacy by saying, okay, the state has a legitimate mon- a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. That's fine. But it uses that force in the name of the people. And the people have a seat at the table in evaluating that conduct. My view is every time a police officer kills a civilian on the streets in a confrontation, there should be strict liability. The police should be required to pay the estate some sum of money, million, two million, three million, whatever it is, at a minimum. Um, and people will say, but, 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 but what about a finding of fault? And, and won't that chill the police? No, it'll force police to train one another to be yeah. more careful with ordinary people. Because when they kill, they're yeah. killing in our name. And don't tell me I don't get a right to evaluate that. So I think the Civilian Accountability Review Board will be great for New Haven. So, Willis, so if this happens, um, do you think other states will like call up and say, how did y'all do that? No, I think there are review boards in Connecticut. There was one that was um, done by mayoral appointment um, some time ago. I'm told it's been I what do, to last. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm starting to look, in fact, I will today, um, start to look at st- um, um, ordinances from around the country. So I think they exist. Um, whether New Haven becomes the model city in that regard, I, I have no idea. I, you know, from, I, I don't think that broadly. I mean, I'm a busy lawyer. I was asked <laughs> to accomplish this task, and I'll let the politicians worry about where it goes. <laughs> All right, so, all right, uh, we got about, what, five minutes left? We got about five minutes Hi, left. Hi, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so tell me what do you do for fun? Um, like, read. what do people not know? What do you do for fun, and what's the 
biggest misconception that people have about you? What do I do for fun? Um, my wife and I cook. I run. I like to read. I read compulsively. I read three, four books a week. I don't. You oh know. my god! <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, um, I can't. I have to stop complaining about my reading life. And if you um, do that, biggest <laughs> misconception. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't really worry a whole lot about what other people think about me because I'm out there every day. And if I started to worry about that, it'd be a misconception. I, I don't think I'm as bad as most people say. So you know, in this trial, one of the prosecutors come up to me. You know, people talk a lot of stuff about you you're really not such a bad guy i said what did we let you believe i was so i don't i don't think i'm a bad guy i don't think you are either um, but plenty of people do and you know people think i'm a bad guy till they need me and that's <laughs> and then suddenly i'm saint norm the lost you know the the, the patron of lost soul um, and that's 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 what a criminal defense lawyer is we don't you know i don't endorse murder but if you're accused of murder the state's going to have to prove each and every element of the crime and i'll give them the fight of their life wow Thank you, Norm Pattis. Thanks for having this me. This was Beth. enjoyable. Yeah, it was. It was fun. I really I have to have you come back so we could talk about because I really want to talk about jury duty because you wrote a piece about mm-hmm. um, um, doing jury duty and and how th- why that's important. Absolutely. And I really like to delve into that because I think it is important and people sort of shirk that civic. Duty. No, that's right. It's a huge mistake. This is our world, and if you're and it's one of, if you've if you're been if you're given an opportunity to comment on what justice requires. Why would you shirk from it? Yeah. And if you shirk from it, don't complain about what happens yeah, next. Yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you. And, and if you see me in a jury, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> and you're out there, um, <laughs> there are only two things I need to hear from you. <laughs> Write them down. Got a pencil? <laughs> Not guilty. guilty. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Norm Pattis. Thanks, You Beth. are a delight. Good to see you. Thank you, Harry, for producing today. So play us out. So Michelle Turner is up next, and she's got um she's got some local a local celeb on talking about music. So have a lovely day, y'all. See you tomorrow.